All right, I am spotlighted, so don't worry about that. Um, got it. You got to accept that I'm recording. So what I want to tell you, I want to start off with a different joke. So the joke goes like this. Uh, rabbi's sitting in a study late at night, studying all the books of law, as he should. And suddenly comes down his chimney. Not Santa. No, not Santa this time. Comes down his chimney, a robber. And the rabbi looks at the robber. The rabbi looks at the rabbi. And the rabbi looks at the rabbi and says, Rabbi, I came to ask you a very serious question. The rabbi says, okay, what is it? He says, tell me, rabbi, how do I get out of here? <laughs> so tonight we're going to discuss Jewish law. We're going to have a discussion of Jewish law. We have done in the first class the oral tradition versus the uh, written law. We had in the second class, we had Midrash, the expounding of the Torah. The third class, we had the Talmud. Today, we're going to discuss Jewish law. So Jewish law, so to speak, we're cutting to the chase. We're finally getting to the ultimate part of um, where this all leads to. Remember, the Torah was given, obviously, life lessons, but also to tell us what to do. How do you know what to do? As we saw last week, reading the Talmud alone it may not tell you what to do because the Talmud can move in all different directions. It can move backwards, lateral, it can move forwards. So for that, we have a body of teachings called Halacha. Halacha, which uh, generally means law, but the literal translation of the word Halacha means uh, to go because it's teaching us how we should go about in our day-to-day -day life. So we're going, to, we're going to discuss today's class in two different ways. We're going to start off the beginning of the class. We're going to discuss the etymology. That's a good word, right? Etymology. How halacha formed the body of what we know as law today. How did that form? And then in the second half of the class, we're going to do case studies of Jewish law. A little more abstract than your day-to-day -day questions, but really to show you how um, the process of, of coming up with law today, Jewish law, works. Can I just interfere? Yes. Uh, you said the alacha is to go. There's two meanings yep. to alacha, two. One okay. is yes to go, lalechet, from the, from the root, lalechet. Yeah. And, and the other one is from leolich, which is to lead. To lead. Okay. So one is to go, one is to lead. Okay. Either, either one works, right? Correct. Either one works. So let's take a look at a uh, precedent in the Bible for uh, the idea that Jewish law is called halacha. So we're going to look at text number one. And this is going to be on page, uh, this is going to be on page 148. Page 148. All right, so this is in um, Exodus 18.20. God tells Moses, Instruct them on the statutes and the teachings. Make known to them the way on which they should go and the actions they should do. So there you have in Hebrew, haderech yelchuba, the way which they should go and the actions that they should do. And so there you see the word halacha uh, being used. And halacha is really the epitome of Torah because even though Torah, as we said earlier, includes a lot of different things. I'm going the wrong way. Okay, even though Torah includes a lot of different things, um, Torah also includes, to, the word Torah means instruction, as you see here in the text, 
The word Torah means instruction. For the function of Torah is to instruct us in the action that we should do. That is why it is specifically the five books of Moses that are called Torah as they contain the mitzvot. So again, Torah is our wisdom. It's our history. It's our, our culture. But above all, Torah is instruction, our guide to life, everything that we do. And how do we know what to do? For that, we look at the body of law called halacha. Um, now, halacha doesn't just address, um, you know, well, let me put it this way. Jewish law covers really every aspect of our lives. That's really an important part to understand. In other words, um, it's not just that we're Jewish and there are certain Jewish things we do, right? So you might say, well, I only need a rabbi when I'm in synagogue or when I, um, when I uh, you know, celebrate Passover, when I celebrate Sukkot, then I need Jewish law. Jewish law encompasses every aspect of our lives. Uh, virtually everything we do is guided by halacha Jewish law. And we are going to take a look now at a graph, which is going to show us just how all-encompassing Jewish law is and how questions have been raised throughout the ages. And this will kind of give you a taste of what goes on when we discuss Jewish law. So if you have the student book, it's figure 4.1 on page 150. And we're going to go through these questions. And uh, these are all through all different eras, um, very fascinating, different questions throughout the ages. So let's take a look over here. Uh, this is going to be hard for us because, uh, okay, let's zoom in. So I'm going to start on the left side. Okay, queries throughout the ages. And these are different questions from different eras of life. Okay, so here you have on the top left, question in Atlanta to Rabbi Tobias Guffin. Question was, is Coca-Cola kosher? You know what the answer was? Only if it has cocaine. No, I'm kidding. Uh, actually, the answer was originally the original recipe of Coca-Cola was not kosher because there was a small ingredient of Coca-Cola and therefore they changed the recipe and uh, it was made kosher. All right, here you have Rabbi Moses Feinstein. Uh, in 1977, there was a question of co-joined twins and they wanted to make a surgery to save the life of one of the twins. Would it be allowed? In 1978, when volunteers respond to a medical emergency on Shabbat, are they permitted to drive home after the emergency has been taken care of? Good question, right? So you might say that they're allowed to go to the hospital for the emergency, but why should they come back? Is it, a, is it like, you know, we know obviously you can do anything in Jesus to save your life, but why would they have to come back to each other? Like, what do they need to come back for, right? So, you know what the answer is? Any thoughts, any guesses? No. You would say they can't no. come back? No. No, they can walk. Uh, so they drive back home. Shabbos. You're a doctor. You're called in for an emergency call. One of your patients is sick in the hospital. Uh, you run over to the hospital. Now the question is, can you drive back home on Shabbat? If uh, okay. Any other thoughts? Right. You think you shouldn't because there's no reason to go home. Okay. No, you can go home. You can Any go other home. thoughts? Any other thoughts? No. Anybody else? Shabbos. Shabbos is Shabbos. So you're telling me that every religious doctor <laughs> that's on call just has a horrible Shabbos. Okay. Uh huh. Unless he's in the Arab. So the actual you can't. You cannot. You're allowed to go back home. And the reason is 
because we are worried if we don't allow them to go back home, they will not be in a rush to leave their house. They'll be thinking, should I, do I really have to go? Do I not really have to go? Because he knows once he goes, he won't get back home. So therefore, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, I believe it was uh, said, no, the doctor should, is allowed to come home because we don't want to have them to have any idea in their mind to slow them down from heading over to an emergency. It's very interesting. Okay. Um, let's go to some older questions. You have on the bottom of here, a question in Zurich. In 1963, may a person undergo cosmetic surgery for the purpose of improving the appearance, right? We know in Judaism, we're not allowed to do anything to our body, right? Only um, under certain circumstances. So we understand a surgery to save your life, you're allowed to do, but an elective surgery, basically, for cosmetic reasons, are you allowed to do it? What do you think? Well, you pierce your ears, so... You would say the law says no, huh? No, I would say yes. That's what you think. It's yes, only if you're thinking okay. for a mate, you know, like if you're hoping for to get married, it's allowed. It's, I think I remember reading that. I would say yes. Very good. Yeah, I, I believe I that is the correct answer, right? If your self-perception of yourself is causing you such mental anguish, then you would be allowed to take a cosmetic surgery. That's my understanding. I'm sure... Today, there's many rabbis that have all different opinions. Uh, I'm sure it probably depends who you ask. But, it's an but here you're seeing an example throughout all different ages, all different times. All the, first ra the first time it comes up, that's what we're pointing to. You know, these questions have now been around for a while. Let's take a look. Uh, one from 1894 at the bottom. This is in, what is that, Argentina. Rabbi Yosef Aron Taran. Is the Muscovy duck a New World species kosher? Right? Muscovy duck. Is the Muscovy duck kosher? What do you think? Yeah, ducks are kosher. No so more. again, well, let me back up the question. You don't like it. So let me let me back up the question. In Judaism, right, we know animals, uh, you know, split hooves, shoot their cud. Birds, the Torah lists us birds that you are not allowed to eat. But we don't know, we don't know how to identify all those birds. So the, the law is generally birds that we have a tradition that we can eat, those ones we eat. But since Muscovy duck, they didn't discover until much later, the question is, do we put it with the rest of the ducks or? Very good. That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. If it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? So I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer there was, but it's, a, it's an interesting question. Isn't that same thing about a turkey as well? Some don't eat turkey. Some don't eat turkey. Correct. Some don't eat turkey. Yep. Um, all right, here we have a question from Barcelona, 1275. Is it appropriate to inscribe the donor's name on a synagogue annex that he donated? I wonder what the answer to that one is. <laughs> uh, but you see here, that was the first time they, the, the question was raised, you know, or at least written up to us that it was raised. Um, the answer is, depends how much money, depends how much money they're donating. Okay, uh, next Next question from 1699, a woman committed adultery and fears that she is pregnant. Is she permitted to drink a potion that would terminate her pregnancy? Ah, interesting question. Um, all right, here we have another question. When calculating one's, in 1699 also, the same rabbi, when calculating one's earning for tithing, giving 10%, may a person deduct their business expenses? So is it gross or is it net? Interesting question. They wanted that capacity. Okay, let's turn to let's go to the next page. All right, here we have 1970. Are organ transplants permitted according to Torah law? What do you think? No. You think no? You think yes? Anybody else? Everybody on the Zoom is very quiet. Are you talking? 
It depends on the circumstance. Maybe, maybe my speaker's not working. Nina, are you trying to talk? Yeah. Can someone I'm else try talking? Maybe, maybe they're not able to talk. Maybe I don't have them connected to the right speaker. Oh, the speaker died. No, they're not. Ah, no wonder we can't hear them. Oh, I was wondering. It's so quiet. It's <laughs> it's great, right? No, okay. it's not nice. If a life is in danger. If a life is in danger. Yes, I, I second that. That's been, uh -huh. that's been the quietest. Uh, okay, sorry about that, everybody. Huh? If a life's yeah, in danger. You can go straight down this way as well. Um, if a life's in danger and the person's Jewish. <laughs> okay, one second. All right, I can hear you now. Talk. Hello? If, if a life's in danger and they're Jewish, it's kosher. Okay, all right, that's one thought. So you Is say that giving that or receiving? Is that being dead. a donor or receiver? I thought the question was for receiving a uh, transplant. Uh, the no, question I... was no. The question was uh, well. That's to... Well, it's the both questions are, are valid. Can you donate and can you receive? Well, for sure you can donate. Yeah. For sure. No, you may. Uh, that I would think that'd be a question because when you're buried, you're supposed to be buried with all your parts. Theoretically, aren't you? Oh, no. Um, I guess it's that bone in your neck or whatever. So who thinks organ donation is allowed? Are you? It's a living donor, then yes, but not harvesting from a dead body. Ah, very good. Harvesting from a dead body is definitely not allowed. Well, no, harvest, sorry. Making somebody die because you're going to take their organs is a problem. Okay, yes. Right. yes, yes. Okay. All right, let's take a look at another question. This is in Lumza, 1891. May a couple who are unable to conceive resort to artificial insemination. So here already in 1895, they're already asking about uh, artificial insemination. 1891, does taking a photograph violate the biblical prohibition against a graven image? Well, let's take a photo to find out. Okay, no. Okay. Um, there are still some people who are careful about it, but for the most part, uh, no. But here you see, as the generations go by, these questions come up. All right. In Lvov. Can machine-made matzah be used for the Passover Seder? Anybody Anybody has any answers? Yes, plug for my previous class. I gave a class on this um, uh, like a year ago. You can find it uh, online. Okay. Um, it, there's no, uh, okay, sorry. Yeah, no worries. Next question. Someone has a lot of static on their end. Okay. Uh, question is over here. Um, I'm going to go to Tiberius in 361. Now that a present calendar has been established for the Jewish years, should diaspora communities nevertheless continue to observe the additional days of the festivals, which they've been keeping because they were uninformed of the new month, right? So in other words, we keep two days of the holiday because we didn't know, but now we have a calendar. Do we still keep two days? I'm sure you know the answer is yes. yes. Uh, let's take a look here. Can the synagogue service be conducted in German instead of Hebrew? Another question: May one dress as a non-Jew when traveling to the city where Jewish where Jews are forbidden to enter? Um, another question: 1760: A patient died during surgery to remove bladder stones. May an autopsy be performed in order to further medical knowledge for this procedure? Any thoughts? Yes. You would say yes. Of course. Judaism is very against autopsies. Only if it's a suspicious cause of death to determine if it was like murder. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure the answer is no. I'm pretty sure autopsy is, is really problematic in Judaism to the point where even if it's to save a future life, only if it's to save a current life, like there's some there's some relevancy right now. But if it's, yeah, 
I'm pretty sure that's the law. So why uh, do they sanction it in Israel? Uh, the, the autopsies in Israel, uh, today they do pretty much a scan for their autopsy. A. B is Israel is not a religious country. So does Israel do it? Maybe. Do the religious do it? No. Um, okay. 1400. Two Jews were forced to convert to Christianity. Uh, can they be considered kosher witnesses? So here you have all different types of Oh, here's a good one from uh, Rabbi Ovadi Yosef in Jerusalem. Wow. Should terrorists be released in order to free the hostages being held in Antebi? So in other words, do we do a prison swap? Gilad Shalit, is that allowed? What do you think? In Jewish law? Of course, you, of course. You can swap terrorists yeah. for Jewish lives? Yeah, it's a Masim Nefesh Misrael. You're saving a Jew, but on the flip side is you know that these are terrorists and they may go out and kill other people. Kill them later. <laughs> you kill them like well, when Israel swapped Gilad Shalit for a thousand terrorists. We know that um, some of those terrorists have gone on to murder other other Jews. So the question is, do you look at it where it is right now? You know, is right now they're not murdering, or do you look at it at their possible potential? Okay. You look at now. You look. You look to see if the individual exactly right now. I agree. Yeah, hundred percent. I hear what you're saying. Um, the other problem with it is, when, especially when you flip a thousand for one, is now there's more incentive to capture Jews. But now you, now you make it a number again. No, I'm talking as a it, principle. Right, right. You're talking if it's one for one. What yeah, I'm saying is there principle. is a difference between one for one and a thousand for one. There's possibly. Okay, let's take a look at 1995. Is it permissible to walk past a video camera that's recording on Shabbos? What do you think? You have to avoid... Do you have to avoid the camera? If you do, then you can't come to Shul here on Shabbos. I'm sorry. <laughs> the answer is... It, huh? You have a camera working on Shabbos? We have cameras here recording on Shabbos, yes. Oh, boy. Yes, oh, that's it. You're not coming anymore, right? You left me no option. <laughs> it, it, today, you can't go anywhere without being recorded by a camera. If uh, you're not specifically trying to record something, right? So... You're not, I'm not trying to record a family bar mitzvah, right? It's, it's, it records all the time, and we're only going to look at it for security. Um, then it would be okay. Yeah. We'll I see. Okay. Yes. Okay. Does it apply to motion detecting lights? If they're motion detecting lights are different because there's an uh, there's you can say there's a benefit right away. The cameras, you're not benefiting. You don't see anything happening. It's all in the background. Um, so motion uh, motion lights could be a problem. Um, that's another story. All right, 1982. Should a halachic prohibition be issued against smoking in light of the evidence of the health health risks it entails? Any any thoughts? Well, I think I think the rabbis ultimately realized that if you make a prohibition, it just means more people are going to do it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 1992. In cases of a surrogate motherhood, who is the halachic mother? Is it the birth mother or is it the mother who gave the egg? Okay, so here you see, here are just a couple examples of, oh, here's another question. 1990, what is the blessing for chocolate? Can one own stock in a company that sells non-kosher food? Why did it take until 1990 to question the broken for chocolate? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, oh, this is a great one from Krakow. A thief asked me if he is allowed to recite the blessing of Hamotzi after eating stolen bread. What do you think? Yes. Are you allowed to recite Hamotzi after eating stolen bread? Yes. Yes, I remember this. It was yes. 
Yeah, you are. You think yes? Yeah, only if you stole I, I it think... to save your life. Like if you're stealing, it's allowed. You're allowed to steal bread if you're if you're hungry. Your life. It you depends on if it was a Jew that you stole from. <laughs> well, let's let's say you let's say you stole it and you you weren't starving. Then why you stole it? Huh? Why you stole it? Does it does it like in Eating food without a bracha is stealing from Hashem anyways. You think you're double stealing? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. But is it a blessing afterwards? You know, you're not allowed to... A certain. So it's really interesting question because certain mitzvahs you can do with a stolen item and certain mitzvahs you can't. For example, a sukkah, you sit in a stolen sukkah, you're not fulfilling any obligation. Uh, certain mitzvahs, it says it has to be yours. Then certain things you steal them, it says God hates it, so... So, but here you weren't doing a mitzvah, right? Eating bread is not a mitzvah. So one can make the argument, okay, I can't steal tefillin, right? But maybe if I um, steal bread, I can make the after blessing because it's not connected. Okay, I wasn't doing a mitzvah. Now I stole the bread. I can make the after blessing. But what if it's for that's, that's what it was. That's what you would think. <laughs> oh, you're saying what if it's what if it's your bread for Shabbos? Yeah, I hear you. Uh, it's a good question. I would say no, because it's not your it's not yours or something. Huh? It's you're glad they answered the question, not you, right? <laughs> what would you say? Chop off his hands or something? Okay. So, all right. So now you have a taste again. Halacha means the final law. Here you have a taste of very complex laws, uh, but there are some simpler laws of life that also uh, have been developed over the centuries. For example, how do we put on tefillin? How do we say Shema? How do you write a mezuzah? These also are questions that had to be developed. And so now I'm going to present to you with kind of the development of Jewish law. And the way it works is like this. There was the Torah, or there is the Torah. The Torah has lots of mitzvahs in it. As we have showed you multiple times, you read the Torah itself, you will have trouble understanding it or understanding what it's trying to tell you. So then there was the oral tradition, okay? So we had the oral tradition going on, but then eventually Rabbi Yehuda Nasi decided to write down the oral tradition in a book called the... Anybody remembers? Tanakh? The Mishnah. The Mishnah, very good. In a book called the Mishnah. So the oral tradition was written in a book called the Mishnah. And then eventually the Mishnah was explained in the Talmud. The problem with both of those books is both of those were not very great for someone who wants to know the final law. What do I mean? The Mishnah. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you. Uh, we'll send you the recording. The Mishnah was written as a almost notes for a scholar. Okay? So it was not written like a guidebook, right? It's almost like written like an Ikea uh, instruction manual, okay? <laughs> you know, That's it's- pretty good. It is, I don't know. It's more pictures with anything than anything else, right? In other words, the Mishnah was not written in a organized, even, even the Mishnah, which is semi-organized, was written with a lot of assumptions of prior knowledge. It wrote down arguments. It wasn't trying to tell you what you have to do. It was almost a notebook for scholars. Then the Talmud, that's even harder to follow. I mean, the Talmud- expounds upon that and puts everything not in order as we discussed 
when we discussed the Talmud, you know, how the Talmud can move lateral or backwards or forwards. So then you're really stuck with multiple opinions going in logical circles, and it doesn't necessarily tell you what the final law is. So what happened was, so again, you had the Mishnah, you had the Talmud, a scholar could know what to do. And that was fine because there were many scholars in those days, and that was working fine. But then eventually, as time went on and exile got harder, a couple of rabbis realized we needed to make this a little more simple for people. So there was a commentary called the Rif. The Rif, and uh, I think I think there's a graph. I'm not going to show it right now, but I think there's a graph on page um, 158. Then there was a rabbi called the Rif. Yeah, he's over there. Uh, 1085. The Rif <clears throat> took the Talmud, and and every tractate of the Talmud, he literally cut out all the back and forth and just took from the Talmud what's the final law, what you should do. So on the one hand, it was easier. You could just follow what you have to do. On the other hand, though, he was following the order of the Talmud, so it was still complicated. It wasn't still a guidebook saying, all right, when you wake up in the morning, what do you have to do? You know, uh, when, you, when it's Sukkot, what do you have to do? You still have to check all the books to find the answers. And just now it was more of an abridged version of the final law based on the Talmud's order. So we were getting somewhere, but not fully. Uh, shortly after that, a man called the Rush. The Rush was in the year 1327. You have other the Rush did a very similar thing to the Rif, where again, he took the Talmud and he took the laws and he put the laws in a order in which we can understand. Sorry, he did the same thing. He, he cut out all the discussion from the Talmud and gave you the final ruling. So again, still helpful, but still a little too long and a little too disorganized. Finally came around a very special person called the Rambam. I'm sure you've all heard of the Rambam. And the Rambam was in what year? 1180. So the Rush did it as well. So the Rush actually did it after the Rambam. But the Rambam was the first one to really come up with a guidebook that would make life simple for us. Maimonides says, you want to know what to do? I'm going to tell you what to do from the beginning of your day to the end of your day. It's going to be organized in chapters and sections. Here's the section on prayer. Here's the section on Shabbat. Here's a section on kosher. Here's a section on mezuzahs. Here's a section on tefillin. He organized everything so that you can know exactly what to do when you want to do it. You can even look up a specific area. And it was written, not assuming you had no prior knowledge, literally giving you exactly what you should be doing. And so he was the first one to make life simple. We're going to show an example over here of the difference between a Mishnah, which you would think is simple, versus Maimonides. Okay, so we're going to start on page 153. Huh? Yep, page 153. Um, all right, page 153, and I'm going the wrong way again. All right, this is the laws of reading Shaman. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go with the English over here. All right, so here's what it says. Um, Okay. From when do we read the Shema in the evening? Do you already see a problem with this line? Anything that jumps out to you, just reading that first line? From when, it starts off with a question. This is the first 
Mishnah of the entire Mishnayot. And this is how it starts. From when do you read the Shema in the evening? So this is not like in the middle of a chapter. This is the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. This is how it starts. From when do you read the Shema in the evening? What's the problem with that? If you were looking for something clear. I mean, if it's... It when the Shema really begins with the, the, the preamble, so to speak, the, you know, the, the lines before it, and then it says the evening, that's time right yeah that's so, the thing correct there is a time when you read the shema the problem is it's already making an assumption for you over here it's making an assumption for you that you know you should be reading the shema daily it's making an assumption you know you should be reading the shema in the evening contrast that with maimonides line i'll just go to the beginning of maimonides line in his beginning of the laws of shema and he starts like this this is text number four Let's read this. The Shema is read twice every day in the morning and in the evening. That's just one simple example. He's just very simple. The Mishnah, yes, it's law, but it's not, it's again, it's notes for a scholar. So the scholars already know you say Shema twice a day. They already know you say Shema once in the evening, once in the morning. Good evening, Jeff. Um, but now it's telling you, it just starts off with a question. All right, we know you say the Shema at night. What time do you say it? Okay, so again, it's not it's not very clear if somebody's just trying to learn law. Let's take a look at another section. One more section over here. And uh, we'll show differentiation just so you get an idea. All right, then the next then it starts to go into. All right, so it answers you from the time when the Kohanim enter to partake of their Teruma until the end of the first watch. Um, <laughs> yeah, so what is happening? Anybody knows? Anybody knows? Uh, anybody knows what that means over here? So again, this is making an assumption that you're a scholar and you know when the Kohanim entered Truma, when the end of the first watch is. Because again, this is really going to the source of the matter. Maimonides doesn't say that at all. Maimonides just says you do it at night from when people start to go to sleep. Okay, it's not giving you uh, random examples. Um, okay. So I don't want to go too much on a on a ramble over here, but you're already seeing the difference. So again, Mishnah was not designed for the average person to know what to do unless you knew it all. And again, Mishnah really relied on your knowledge. Talmud, definitely not for the average person. The Rif and the Rush both wrote a condensed version of the Talmud with the final law of what you're supposed to do. Still complicated. Then came along Maimonides, and he finally was the first one to give a order to the law, what you should do. So he starts off with uh, the laws, laws of loving God, which includes prayer. Uh, I should really just pull up a section of Maimonides. Let's take a look at uh, Maimonides' uh, laws of prayer. I'll just read you from the beginning, just so you get an idea, okay? Uh, Rambam, laws of prayer. Let's see, Mishnah Torah, prayer and priestly blessing. Okay, so let's say, for example, Maimonides, when he wants to tell you about prayer, he starts off like this. Again, he's giving it to you spoon-fed. He, he's telling you exactly what you need to know. So he starts off like this. Is it, it is a positive commandment in the Torah to pray every day. As the Torah says, you shall serve God your Lord. Tradition teaches us that this service is prayer. So again, he's out to explain to you. You don't have to have any prior knowledge. He's going to tell you exactly what you should be doing. And he's going to make it simple and easy for you. That's Maimonides. Now, the problem with 
these three pillars of people who made Jewish law, the Rif and the Rush and the, and, and the Rambam, is they all came from different areas within different countries with different customs. As we mentioned earlier, the Talmud was the last one where everybody agreed upon. So uh, finally there came another rabbi and he made another organization of Jewish law called the Arba Turim. I'm not going to get into that because it's a little complicated, but he split up Jewish law into four sections. And then shortly after him came another rabbi called Rabbi Yosef Karo, who wrote, I would say, the most influential book since the days of the Talmud. And Rabbi Yosef Karo wrote a book called the Shulchan Aruch, otherwise known as the Code of Jewish Law. So that was, this was the most accepted book. The only problem with Rabbi Yosef Karo's book was he wrote it from a very Sephardic bias. Rabbi Yosef Karo was Sephardic, and he relied very much on Sephardic rabbis, and so he had a very Sephardic bias. And so there was another rabbi at the time who wrote also a similar code, and he attached his teachings to the code of Jewish law, called Rabbi Moshe Israelish, the Ramah, from the city of Krakow. And so now we have the code of Jewish law, along with an additional lines in it for the Ashkenazim, and this is what we have today. This is mostly from where Jewish law comes from, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. As you can imagine, like any Jewish scholarship, since the time the Code of Jewish Law has been written, although it was very well accepted, there's been many commentaries on it, and Jewish law is still complicated till this day. But that's how it goes. But to an extent, we all go back to the Code of Jewish Law. And therefore, if a Jew today wants to know what to do, the easiest thing for you to read is actually what's called Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, the condensed version of the Code of Jewish Law. Wonderful book. It's a little dry because it's telling you exactly what you should do, but it's a wonderful book. And uh, it's very small. And it literally, I think in the 1800s, Rabbi Shlomo Gansfried wrote it, where he condensed the Code of Jewish Law so that people can study and know exactly what to do. So look that up. Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, the condensed version of Jewish Law. It's translated in English. And there's a rabbi on a podcast, Rabbi Arye Weinstein, who actually has a daily podcast of a section of Jewish law, if you're interested in that. But it, you know, if you want to know what to do, it's a great book to have and a great book to look at. Still, though, if you read something and you know your rabbi does something different, uh, call your rabbi, ask him why, because as I'm sure you know, there's multiple opinions in everything. Um, so all of this has been the development of Jewish law. So again, I'm telling you all this because in a moment, we're going to delve into some Jewish law, very fascinating case studies. So again, it started off with the oral tradition written in the Mishnah. The Mishnah has, still has lots of arguments. The Talmud definitely has lots of arguments. Then some rabbis started putting it together into, into law until finally we get the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, along with the Ramah, the Code of Jewish Law, along with Rabbi Moshe Isherlich, which has the teachings for both Sephardic and Ashkenazic. Since that point in time, as new questions arise, we keep looking back to the sources to find precedent and try and figure out how do we adjudicate today. So for example, the Code of Jewish Law does not talk about electricity. How do you figure that out? Okay, this is where uh, later on scholars have to figure this out. So we are going to take a look at a question, which is a question of life and death. And we are going to trace it from the beginning, from the Bible, and show you how it comes to Jewish law in modern times. Okay, so again... We don't just want to talk about these ideas. We want to, we want to uh, show you how Jewish law works. Just one second. Let me let somebody in. Um, okay. We want to show you how Jewish law works. Just so you understand, what we're going to show you in a moment is very complicated because this is for a complex question. And it's possible that a lot of other questions went through this complexity. 
For example, when electricity first came out, it was very complex. Today, most of the rabbis have, have consensus over electricity. So what I'm trying to tell you is like this. Despite the complexity I'm going to show you, and you'll appreciate the beauty of how Jewish law comes to be, for you to study Jewish law doesn't have to be that complicated, especially today. There are so many digests written, and you have the code of Jewish law. Jewish law does not have to be complicated. I'm, we're just showing you here the etymology of Jewish law, but I don't want you to ever think that Jewish law is so complicated that you cannot follow it. I'm just giving that warning over here. Yeah, let's talk about rice. Okay. Huh? Let's talk about, let's rice. Talk about rice. Okay. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. If you're Ashkenazic, you don't eat it. If you're Sephardic, you eat it. And even and even not all Sephardim eat it. Uh-huh. Oh, that what blessing do you make on rice? That's a good question. Right. So there, there are complicated questions in Jewish law. That's correct. Um, so again, what have we done today so far? Today, we have told you that Jewish law is the most important thing because it tells us how we're supposed to act day to day. We explained the confusion in trying to create Jewish law. We showed you the etymology of how Jewish law was created. I've told you that following Jewish law shouldn't be too difficult if you get the right books. And finally, we're going to show you a case study now of actual Jewish law. Anybody is lost over here yet? Or have I? No. Okay. Again, I, I highly suggest uh, there, there is a lesson video on this class, but it's 11 minutes long. I didn't want to show it to you, but it really del delves a little deeper <coughs> into the books of Jewish law, into, I would say, the four categories of Jewish law. You can watch that video later if you go to that link that I sent out today, myjli.com slash booksmart, and you go to lesson four, you can watch that video. Okay, so let's take a look. Um, we're going to start with some text um, to give you an idea. All right, we're going to start on page 160. Text number five, I'm going to share it on the screen in a moment, but if you have your books, turn to page 160. Um, so you all know, I assume, that in Judaism, Jewish life is very important, right? So we're going to explore that first from its source. Or I shouldn't say Jewish life. Let me take that back. Human life is very important, okay? So let's take a look at um at this just one second i see there's a chat um okay that's it okay so what is the source in genesis when god created us it says god created the human in his image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them now we're not going to get complicated with the male and the female but the main point is we are created in God's image, okay? Why is that important for our discussions? Let's take a look at the next text. So the next text says like this. Um, sorry, forget that, okay. Um, so being that we are created in the divine image, as we're going to see, therefore God does not like murder. Why? Because we are the image of God, and by a person being murdered, it's diminishing the image of God on this earth. The Midrash gives a parable for this. It says, imagine there's a king and he has many um, statues of himself around town and you go around smashing the statues, the king will probably be very upset and might put you to death. Why? Because you're diminishing his image. Similarly, we're creating the image of God. God does not appreciate if someone takes away from his image on this earth. Here's another way how we... Um, See the connection between us being in the image of God with um, 
murder. We know one of the Ten Commandments is do not murder, right? Lo tirzach, do not murder. Now, the, the Ten Commandments were written in two tablets, okay? And uh, at the top of the right side, it says, I am the Lord your God. And at the top of the left side, it says, you shall not murder. And so the commentary says that any they make a corollary between the two. Anybody who kills a human being, who murders a human being, it's as if they are also affecting God. That's why these two commandments are right next to each other. So that was from a medrash called the Mechilta. Okay? So this being said, um, murder is no good. Um, how about how about if a mitzvah conflicts with your life? Okay, just as we can't murder, we can't murder ourselves, meaning suicide is not allowed as well, right? Same logic. We can't diminish God in this world. How about if we want to do a mitzvah, and if we do that mitzvah, uh, we will not be able to live. So again, let's say uh, you know someone decrees that you shouldn't put on tefillin, right? Let's say someone. Let's say a, a big minister comes and says, you should, uh, "Well, no, let's let's say let's say." Well, let's give another example. Let's say robbers come to you, and they want to have fun because you're Jewish, so they put a gun to your head and say, "Either eat a cheeseburger, or I'm going to kill you." What are you supposed to do? Do you eat a cheeseburger or do you let them kill you? Let's say. Okay, good. So we have here on the text, uh, text number seven. Text number seven, mitzvahs to live by. The Torah says, you shall keep my statutes and my laws, which the person shall do and live by them. I am God. So it's an interesting line. It says, keep my statutes and live by them. So the Talmud says, what does it mean to live by the commandments? So it continues like this. Um, sorry, I went the wrong way again. I should be going the Hebrew direction, right? So it says like this. With all transgressions of the Torah, if a person is told transgress so that you not be killed, they should transgress rather than be killed. For the Torah states, live by them, not die by them. Okay? So again, generally, when there comes a commandment, we should not give up our life. We should, someone asks, even in the case of Masada. Masada was a different story. Masada, they were going to be killed anyways. So it was just a matter who was going to kill them. But even there, there's a question, as we'll get to later on in the class. But generally, you are not to take your life even to fulfill a commandment of God. Here's another example, saving a life on Shabbos. We should save a life on Shabbos despite desecrating the Shabbos. In fact, even if we're not sure we're going to save a life, we should do it. Recently, there's the tragedy in Turkey. Uh, the rabbi in Israel told the team of Israel that went to Turkey that they should keep digging the rubble even, even on Shabbat, even though they're not sure they're going to find somebody alive, because that's the law. Even if you just might find somebody alive, you should continue to do life-saving measures. What's really important about this in Judaism is we save a life, even if it won't be a quality life, even if that life, that person won't live long. Because we don't make judgment calls. Oh, well, we're going to save the life of a person who can only live a couple more hours, right? We're, or we're going to save a person who's going to be severely disabled. Well, I mean, there's a whole discussion, of course, you don't resuscitate necessarily in that case. But assuming the person is alive, you have to save a life regardless of the quality because a life is a life is a life. And so we push away all mitzvot to save a life because a, a human being is an image of God. Do we resuscitate? Huh? Do we resuscitate somebody? Do we resuscitate somebody? Not necessarily. Depends. Thank you. <laughs> it depends. Did I confuse you? 
Next year, JLI wants to do a, a, a medical ethics and end of life questions. So in case you're wondering about it, so they'll discuss these questions next year. Um, right, so here the Mishnah says, right, here the Mishnah, the Talmud says, you see over there in um, the Talmud over there in text number 11, tells us clearly, even if the person you're saving is only going to live another few hours, you can still save their life because we do not put value on life. Uh, it's not up to us. That's something that God does. Uh, as it says here in, in the bottom text, which is text number uh, 11, a dying person has the legal status of a living person in every respect. As it is written, not until the silver cord snaps, one who touches a dying person in any way that hastens their death is a murderer. That's why uh, uh, organ donation in Jewish law is very complicated because a lot of times they take the organs while the person's heart and mind are still working. You know, they might be in a serious coma but they take them because that's when they're best used. And we say you cannot take a life, even if the quality of that life is not great. Uh, we have a full value for life. They're an the image of God. It doesn't make a difference how quote unquote useful they are. Okay, they're an the image of God. There's nothing you could do. Um, there are exceptions, of course. I'm not going to read text 12 inside, but there are exceptions. Um, for example, well, actually, there's three exceptions, but we're going to discuss one today. There are three exceptions when um, you should give up your life not to do a transgression, and one of them is murder. In other words, if someone comes to you and says, either you murder that person or I kill you, so you might say, well, the Torah says I should transgress any mitzvah to save my life, right? You can make that argument. Right, the Torah pro 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 prohibits me from murdering, but I can do any transgression to uh, live. No, when it comes to murder, no. As he says, who's you know, why is your blood redder than his? Okay, so again, in short, you are not allowed to kill someone else to save your own life. This is going to be very important very soon. So everybody understands so far, right? G generally, Judaism has a very strong value of saving a life. At the same time. You cannot murder someone else to save your own life, okay? But we're about to make it complicated. Uh, we're going to skip the logic behind it. We're going to go to the dilemma of the water jug. This is very important. Text number 14. All right, so um, there's the two of you traveling in the desert. And um, you, both, you both have, uh, you have water. Another guy used the ball's water. Maybe he took a shower with his water. Maybe he uh, thought they'd get home sooner. Maybe he was doing some Instagram videos. There's only enough water for one person to live. Okay? So the question is, are you obligated to share your water, which in which case you, you both might die, or can you hold on to your water and the other person will die? What do you think should be the answer? Obviously, there's a text, but what do you think? Again. So you have one jug of water, and if you share your water with the other guy, it's possible you'll both die because now you've cut the water in half. It's not for sure, but it's very possible. Whereas if you keep your water, you're going to live. The other guy is going to die. What do you think? What should you do? Should you share it or not? Share. You would share the water. Not asking whether you will share. The question is, what is the, what is, are you obligated to share is the, no. is the question. Are you obligated to share your water? No. What, what do you think? Huh? I'm asking from logic. I said yes. Yeah. You would say you're obligated. Why? 
I'd say. There is a chance that you would both live. Holding on to the water is murdering the other guy. And as we said a moment ago, you cannot murder someone else to save your own life. Okay. Any other thoughts? I think you're obligated. You think you're obligated to share the water? Okay. At the same time, if sharing the water diminishes your own chances of living, then that could be in turn increasing the chance of killing yourself. Oh, you're saying you're ah, interesting. If you share the water, then in, in, a way, in a way you could be murdering yourself. Okay, good. Anybody else? Uh, yes. Huh? Yes. Well, not, I want to know what you think before we read the sages. I want to know what you think. Just curious what you think. Okay. Well, it's all the answers with this. All the uh, if there's no chance we can survive if shared, then no. If there's no chance, well, there's always a chance, but the likelihood is that no. Likelihood is that no. That's where it's at. But good point. Okay. So let's read. Whichever opinion you said, you're lucky because there's two opinions. <laughs> so Ben Petora says, better that both drink and should die than one should witness the death of the other. Okay, that's a logic many people were sharing. But Rabbi Akiva came and he said, the Torah says your brother should live with you. And it says with you, which means he's secondary to you, right? For example, I say, you're going to come along with me to the game. You're secondary to me. I'm going to the game. You're going to come along with me. So when the Torah says your brother shall live with you, your life comes before the life of your fellow. And the law is like Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva says you're not obligated to share your water. Now, there's a question if you could share it anyways. That's why I said that's why I wasn't going to get into that. Maybe you can. Separate discussion. Are you obligated to share your water? Ben Petora says yes, but the law is like Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva says no. Your life comes before the life of your fellow. So I want to know what differentiation is there between this case of the jug of water and the earlier case of where you're not allowed to murder somebody to save your own life. Any thoughts? What's the difference? Any thoughts? What's the question? What is the difference between this case and the earlier case of where you're asked to murder somebody or get murdered? One is active. If you murder somebody, it's, um, it's you're, taking, you're taking the life of that person. But if you don't share, so you, you, with a gun or, or for whatever reason, with, with a, whatever, whatever instrument, but if you withhold water, that's in God's hands. And um, it's not Very guaranteed good. that, you know, Very so good. one is more or less, and, and, and it also gets to the point of premeditated versus involuntary, <laughs> um, right. an involuntary death. Right. So what you're saying is, and very good, is the question is my action. It's not a question of what's the final, what finally happens, right? We don't look at the final result because the final result is kind of the same. We look at Am I taking an action against that other person or not? In the first case where you're, where you're saying either murder that guy or get murdered, well, to murder that guy, you'd have to take an action, okay? In this case, by holding on to your water, you're not taking an action to cause his death. 
In fact, you never have a choice to cause anybody to die, really. The only question is, are you going to make an action to kill somebody, right? Again, whether somebody lives or dies is really up to God. Even in the case where the robber comes to you and says, either you murder that guy or I murder you, ultimately, what happens to that guy is up to God, okay? And so if you choose, uh, so the, the only choice you ever have is, am I going to take an action to murder somebody or not? In the, in the previous case, you were going to take an action to murder. That's not allowed. But in this case, you're not taking action to murder him. You're just holding on to your water. What happens to him is entirely up to God. And so this will have um, a lot of different uh, a lot of different scenarios and cases that you can think about. Um, let's give another let's give another example. Um, let's say you are let's say somebody shoots and there's somebody standing behind you they're shooting at you. If you duck, if you duck, the person behind you gets shot. But if you stay up, you get shot. Interesting question, right? Okay, just trying to twist your minds. But let's go back to action and inaction. JLI had a course earlier where they discussed a question like this. If you have a train heading full steam ahead and it's going to kill 10 people, you can turn that train and head it to kill one person. Are you allowed to turn the train? The answer is no, because when you turn the train, you're taking an action of murder against that single person. Whereas if you let the train go, that's not up to you. That was you know, a, go a godly event. And this goes back to an earlier discussion. We don't really have the ability to decide um, the value of one life over many lives. And we're actually going to see this here in text number 16 as well. So we're going to get another scenario. So that was a train scenario that's discussed in all colleges. Let's take a look at text number 16. And we're going to see at the end what question all this is, is going to be discussing. So let's take a look at uh, text number 16. All right, let's take a look here. If a group of people are traveling on the road and they encounter heathens who say to them, give us one of you that we may kill him. Otherwise, we will kill you all. So they didn't single a person out, okay? Just giving a scenario because every detail matters. They came to a group of a caravan, let's say 10 people. And they said, give us one of your people. And if you don't, we're going to kill all of you. Even if all of them will be killed, they should not hand over a single Jewish soul. Why? Very simple. Because we don't have, we cannot take an action to murder. Uh, there was actually a historical event where this happened. Um, you should know, by the way, Jewish law says if one of the people in the caravan was liable for the death penalty anyways, anyways, you should give him up because <laughs> why should you die if he has to die anyways? But that's a, that's an aside case. Um, in the story of Samson, by the way, the Philistines one time were very upset at Samson. They told Jewish people, either you give us Samson or we're going to wage war against you and kill you. And the Jewish people went to Samson. They said, we cannot force you to go. We're going to ask you nicely, could you go? And he went. And then, of course, he, he slaughtered them with a jawbone of an ass. And uh, they regretted their decision. Um, um, so this is so far what we've gotten. Again, um, the question is, who lives and dies is never up to us. The only question and jurisdiction that we have is what we do. And this all comes to a final question, which we're going to discuss. And this is a Holocaust question that came to an actual rabbi. So it's it's really crazy to us to think of it like this, but... Jews during the Holocaust, a lot of them are very, very committed to Jewish law. And even during the Holocaust, under the worst conditions, 
they um, went to the rabbis and asked them questions. And there was a rabbi called Rabbi Ashri. He was there during the Holocaust in Poland. And he actually survived. And he actually lived to the year 2003. So he passed away recently. And he wrote down five volumes of the questions that he got during the Holocaust and the responses that he answered. And you can imagine their heart, very difficult, difficult decisions. So here is the question that he got. Let's take a look at his question. And uh, let's take a look. It's called The White Cards of the Kovno Ghetto. Okay. So he says, in September 1941, the Nazi SS commander, Gok, uh, arrived in Lithuania. It was he who, en who in end liquidated the Kovno Ghetto. The reputation of his evil and bloodthirsty murder had preceded him, evoking panic among those um, imprisoned in the ghetto. And immediately upon his arrival, he executed a number of Jews. At that time, there arose an issue of notorious white cards. The matter was as follows. Yarden, the German commander of the Kovno Ghetto, instructed the Jewish council to distribute among the workers in the ghetto 5,000 white cards, which he gave to them. These individuals would be the only ones allowed to remain in the ghetto with their families, while the rest would be liquidated. At the time, there were 30,000 Jews in the ghetto, including 10,000 workers. I was asked, are those who are grabbing white cards for themselves to save themselves acting properly, knowing that they are preventing another Jewish family from being saved? So again, there's a limited number of white cards. You know, if you get a white card, that means someone else is dying. Is that allowed? Okay, so would you be allowed, uh, so I guess the white cards were still in the office, would you be allowed to go in and steal those white cards? Um, on the one hand, you could say it's an action because by you stealing the white card, you are causing automatically them to take someone else to die. I'll give another interesting scenario. Um, this, this was a question in uh, one of the camps I read this story, Jay Life with the story here. It was a very interesting question. Um, ah, yes. Ra in uh, a rabbi, Rabbi Meislech, he was in the Auschwitz camps. He describes that on one time, the Nazis rounded up a bunch of boys and locked them in a barrack to be taken to the gas chambers the next day. And somebody came to the rabbi and asked him, I know my son is in that barrack to be taken to be murdered the next day. Um, I can bribe one of the capos and get my son out. But I know if I get my son out, they're gonna have to switch him with another boy. Am I allowed to get my son out knowing that it's gonna cause someone else to go in there? Can you imagine Jews asking this question? Can you imagine what type of commitment they had in the most horrible place to be asking these types of questions? It's unbelievable, it boggles the mind, honestly, it boggles the mind. What happened in the end of there was the rabbi told him, uh, he couldn't possibly answer the question in this situation. And the father kept bugging him, but bugging him. Finally, the father said, I know if the answer was yes, you would have told me already. And the father did not pay ransom for his son to get him out. Crazy story. Now, I would say that case is clear. That case, actually, you could say is clear. Because whichever child was going to be substituted for his child um, would be slated for murder, most definitely, right? In other words, somebody who wasn't going to be murdered was now going to be murdered because of him taking his son out. The question is, in this case, 
where the cards have not yet been given out, do you have the opportunity to steal those cards or not? What do you think? You think yes, because? Because to go back to the act of God, let's say them dying is not a guarantee. It's a probability, but there are so many things that could happen in between the artist's notion of the water. You take your water and then the other person, what happens is, is it's likely, but it's not a guarantee of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any other thoughts? I agree with that. You agree with that? Okay. I didn't, I didn't actually hear that, but I think you have a right to save yourself. Um, doesn't say that, I don't think it says anywhere that you shouldn't save yourself. Right. Um, right, but we've discussed earlier, you can't save yourself if you are causing them, if you're directly causing the murder of someone else. In this case, you can argue that by saving yourself, someone else is going to be murdered instead of you. But you don't know that for sure. <clears throat> what a question, no? Can you imagine people asking these questions? It's crazy that they ask these questions. So the rabbi actually answered that you are allowed to steal the cards before they've been given out. And he actually uh, uh, quoted it based on a law in monetary, in money. So let's take a look at here. It's called deflecting damage. He says like this. A person who anticipates damage that will occur to them is permitted to save themselves, even though this will cause damage to another person. The example is, let's say there's a, there's a river. There's a river that is, um, there's a river, let's say, floating, coming towards your field. If it hits your field, it's going to destroy your field. You have the opportunity to divert the river well before it gets to your field. Now, but if you deflect the river from hitting your field, it's going to end up hitting somebody else's field. Are you allowed to deflect the river? And the answer is yes. However, he continues like this. As the Namukhi Yosef concludes there, if the damage already arrived in their domain, a person is not permitted to remove it from themselves if this will cause damage to their fellow. So in other words, once it's reached your field, it's too late. But while it's still in the potential, if it hasn't reached you yet, you can deflect the damage from coming to your property. And so he says the same thing would be over here. The cards have not yet been given out. If they had been given out, you cannot steal them from someone else. You can't take them. From, if they're slated to go to someone else, you can't steal them because you're, in essence, murdering them by action. However, in the case where they haven't reached anybody yet, it's still in the potential. It hasn't reached their domain yet. You can take the cards, even though you know someone else will be dying in that place, but it hasn't reached them yet. So in essence, you haven't done anything to them. You're just letting the natural course um, take place. Um, let's take a look. They give an example of this. Oh, they say, imagine there's an army. There's an army that's coming and uh, they, they love going around and damaging, let's say the Crusaders, right? Crusaders are bloodthirsty and they love damaging everything in their, in, their, in their midst. So it says, if they're coming and they come to you, you can bribe them to tell them, go away from here, even though you know they're gonna go damage someone else's field. But it says, once they've started damaging you, um, that's, that's a different story. So that is what Rabbi Oshri concluded. So again, basically the law is like this. Um, you cannot take an action to murder someone else. However, if it hasn't yet reached their hands yet, you know, their, so to speak, their card of life, um, then we say you can save yourself 
even though potentially you're going to be murdering someone else, but it, it, it's still in the level of potential. But now I want to go to a second question, which is even more involved. And this was the case of co-joined twins. This happened in 1977. But before I go to the co-joined twins, so far everybody's clear? Yes? Somewhat? The main thing you have to understand is when it comes, so you've seen the etymology of law. We, we basically showed you the etymology of law and how rabbis adjudicated law. So here, it wasn't clear from the laws of murder itself. So the rabbi borrowed a corollary from the laws of money to help him understand and adjudicate in laws of life and death. Here we go to a very interesting case. And this is a case, so this is in the appendix. And uh, this is in the case of uh, 1977. So in 1977, there was a case of twins who were born. And they... It's in text 25 if you want to look at it. There were twins born in Lakewood, New Jersey, to an Orthodox family. And they were taken to the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, where the very famous doctor, Dr. C. Everett Koop was a doctor. Anybody heard of him? He later became the Surgeon General, Dr. C. Everett Koop. And um, immediately after evaluation, it was obvious to all the physicians that the children would die if they were not operated upon. However, if they did an operation, one child would die and one child would live. And the question was referred to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the great rabbi in Posek. Oh, Rabbi, he did a surgery on you. Interesting. Okay. And the question was referred to the great rabbi in Posek, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And they were designated children, child A and child B. And they had a six-chamber heart. They had a six-chamber heart. And let me just uh, move over here. Two babies, one heart. They, were, they, they had a six-chamber heart. And the wall separating the ascent. So one child, pretty much. So there was basically a four-chamber heart and then another two-chamber heart. I guess a heart is supposed to have four, right? So it was essentially a six-chamber heart. And the wall separating the essentially normal four chambers from the other two was most likely a stunted heart. So baby A could not have survived. He had the smaller part of the heart. But if you give the heart to baby B, baby A would definitely die. So it's an interesting question. So the question was, um, let's, let's read it more in this text over here. It was clear to all concerned that this was a major ethical issue. Nurses and doctors at the Children's Hospital consulted with their religious guides, and many reported back they would not be able to participate in the surgery. When a team of 20 or so professionals were awaiting Rabbi Feinstein's physician, and indeed were expressing impatience at the lapse of time, Dr. Koop quieted the group of the following statement. The ethics and morals involved in this decision are too complex for me. I believe they are too complex for you as well. Therefore, I referred it to an old rabbi on the Lower East Side in New York. He is a great scholar, a silly individual. He knows how to answer such a question when he tells me, I too will know what to do. Fascinating. Okay, so he's saying, I, I don't want to adjudicate on this, but let's let Rabbi Feinstein adjudicate on this. So how did Rabbi, so Rabbi Feinstein eventually came up with a decision, but how would he come up with a decision? So again, here we have a case where you're going to have to take an action to murder one person to save another person's life. Now you might say, well, if you leave them as they are, they're both going to die. True. But as we've discussed earlier, you, nevertheless, you cannot take an action to cause someone else to die, okay? So under what right would 
the surgery be performed was the question being given to Rabbi Feinstein. Can you do the surgery? Because yes, both babies are going to die if you don't do the surgery. But if you do do the surgery, you are taking an action to kill one of the children. So what do you think? Do the surgery or not? Had it been a joint birth that both could have lived off, and no, but if it was if baby A was definitely going to die. Ba well, baby A is going to die whether you do the surgery or you don't do right. the surgery. Baby B may live if you do the surgery. Therefore, you're saying you should do the surgery. But at the, but again, as we said earlier, in Judaism it doesn't make a difference how long the person is going to live. You cannot actionably murder someone even if their life quality is not great, right? For Just for example, you have someone dying on their deathbed. They're going to die in a day. I can't take their heart and put it in a, in a, in a young person, right? So how can I take this baby A and kill him? Yes, he's not going to survive, but what difference does it make? How can I take an action to take his life? It's a good question. So let's take a look. We're going to start with text 21. I'm not going to read them inside, but in case you're interested, text 21. Text 21 gives us a uh, doctrine, which is called the doctrine of a rodef, right? We know in general, you're not allowed to murder. However, the law is, if someone is coming to kill you, you are allowed to kill in self-defense. Or if someone is coming to kill someone else, you are allowed to kill them in self-defense. Here it brings a, a verse from, uh, you know, from uh, the Midianites, but I'm not going to get technically into the verse. So that is generally the law. You are allowed to kill someone who is trying to kill you. Um, now, Rabbi, let's take a look at, so let's, so let's see how this plays out with a woman who's having a, a difficult pregnancy. So it says, if a woman is having a very difficult pregnancy and that baby may kill her if you let it stay in her, can you abort the baby to save the mother's life? In Judaism, the answer is yes. We may cut up the fetus inside her womb and remove it limb by limb for her life takes precedence over the fetus's life. Okay, we say her life takes precedence over the fetus's life. Um, and he says, but if the fetus's head has emerged, we may not touch it for we may not set aside one life for another. So what it sounds like in here, like this is like this, it sounds like over here is until the baby's born, right? If you would read this text in the beginning, you would say until the baby's born, the baby's not considered a life, right? But once the baby's born, you can't murder one person to save another person's life. That's what it would sound like to you. The problem with that is that if you look at this text, um, it says for her life takes precedence over the fetus's life, which is an interesting way to say it. It should have just said, for her life takes precedence over a life that's not a life yet. So here, uh, the Talmud explains and says like this. The Talmud says like this. Rabbi Chizda raised an objection to Rav Huna, and he said, if the fetus has that emerged, we may not touch it, uh, for we may not set aside one life for another. But why the fetus is a rodef? So again, the question is, why can't we murder the fetus even once it's been born? The fetus is trying to murder the mother. Okay? How is it any different? The mother has been alive for a long time. This fetus is coming on us, almost trying to kill the mother. And the Talmud responds, this case is different as she is being pursued from heaven. In other words, 
Um, initially, we assumed you can kill the fetus uh, because it is threatening the mother's life. But the Talmud ends off concluding that once the fetus is born, um, it's not considered erotic. The life-threatening situation is an act of God in this case. It's not the mother's doing. So the life of the fetus cannot be sacrificed in order to save the life of the mother once the child is born. Now, I want to back up for a second. When the child is not born, why can you kill the fetus? Because the fetus is not, although it's considered life, it's considered part of the mother. And just as you can amputate one of your limbs, right? Just as you can amputate one of your limbs to save your life, you can, you can abort the child. However, once the child has been born, now it's not part of the mother anymore. It's a separate entity. So again, abortion in the case of the child in the mother, it's considered a part of the mother. Just as you can amputate a limb, you can abort the child. But once the child is born, now the question becomes, all right, this separate entity, is it considered erotic? Is it considered somebody trying to kill the mother's life? And the answer is, well, technically you might say that. However, practically, um, the fetus is not considered erotic because God arranged this. And if God arranged this, we're not going to meddle. In other words, this scenario is a God-arranged story, right? In other words, if if I'm chasing after somebody with a knife, right? Well, yeah, you know, and he, so, well, I shouldn't say myself because it's not a great, right? If someone is chasing after someone else, you can go ahead and murder them. But in this case, the baby wasn't taking an active action and trying to kill the mother. God arranged this scenario. And so the problem is, you might say the same story would be with the twins. God arranged these twins to be born together. And so just as, when a fetus is already born, you don't sacrifice the child for the mother. How could we sacrifice, in this case, baby A for baby B? Sounds pretty strong, right? Again, if you can't sacrifice a born fetus for a mother because God arranged this scenario, how can we sacrifice baby A for baby B? But you know what the rabbi's final answer was? His final answer was, you could. Because baby A is not like a fetus that's been born. Baby A is like a child that hasn't been born. Why? The reason why you can abort a child that hasn't been born yet is because it's still considered a part of the mother. And in this case, baby A, since baby A cannot live with that heart, it's considered a part of baby B. And therefore, killing it is like killing off a limb of itself. So very, very interesting. So this was his back and forth. And this is what he finally ended up with. They did the surgery. Unfortunately, baby B died a couple of days later. But this was the case of the Jewish law that uh, since baby A was considered like a child in his mother's womb because he couldn't survive on his own, um, therefore, uh, baby A was sacrificed for baby B. And uh, it would be akin to uh, amputating one of your limbs in order to save your life. And uh, that was the final analysis. So here you have an example of Jewish law and just how complicated Jewish law is. And again, you see the logic behind it, trying to figure out, is it like the baby that's born? Is it like the baby that's not born? And again, you would initially think it's like the baby that's born. God arranged the scenario. But when you think deeply about it, it's more like the baby that's not born because the baby that's not born is considered a part of the mother. And so was with this baby A who could not survive. And that was one question Rabbi Feinstein asked him. He says, is, can baby A survive with the heart that he has? And the answer was no, he needs baby B's heart. And since he needs baby B's heart, he's considered a part of baby B. So I hope today I didn't complicate you too much, just a little bit. 
but you get an idea of what Jewish law is like, how complex it can be. But I also wanted you to understand that Jewish law is also not complex. There's so much to Jewish law that, uh, that you can study yourself with all the digests, with all the little books that there are. And uh, so I want to end off with the key points that we discussed today. Number one, we discussed what halacha is. Halacha is the path in which we serve God. Uh, we discussed the emergence of special halachic books, dedicated halachic books, right? Mishnah, Talmud were not dedicated halachic books, but over the centuries, dedicated halachic books came to be. We discussed there are different types of halachic works. You can read that. You can follow that more in the lesson video, which we didn't show. We discussed the major codes of Jewish law, the code of Jewish law, Maimonides. And finally, we had two case studies. Case study A was... Um, I'm already forgetting. Case study A, huh? Right, the Kovno Ghetto. Case study B was um, the case of the two babies. So here we see Jewish law is very, very fascinating. In other words, in uh, medical ethics is very difficult. In a lot of it is what do we feel is the right thing? Jewish ethics is very different. We're following a certain set of laws, and those set of laws are very interesting, and they sometimes create ethical. Uh, outcomes that would not necessarily be what medical ethics would say, but it would be what Jewish ethics law says based on these principles. For example, differentiation between action and non-action. Uh, it's a limb of the mother. It's not a limb of the mother. So all these things are very, very interesting. And so Jewish law is very intricate. That's, for example, why a lot of people like to say, you know, the Jewish view on abortion and uh, the Jewish view on abortion is very complicated uh, because it's really not one side or the other. Uh, it's very complex. As you can see, our, our way of coming to final conclusions is very complex. And um, uh, so I hope you have an appreciation for the complexity and how Jewish law comes to be. So thank you so much. I'm going to stop the recording. And uh,